Thank you for joining me for another episode of Empower Apps. We're joined again by Tim Condon. Hey, Tim, how you doing? Hey, Leah, I'm really good, thanks. Thanks for having me on again. So I wanted to continue our conversation and talk about some of the changes that are coming in the pipeline when it comes to Vapor 5. Mm-hmm. Do you want to go ahead and explain some of those? Yeah, sure. So Vapor 5 is on the horizon now, I guess, now that Vapor 4 is released. And the big focus of that is probably going to be async await. There's a lot we still don't know about the async implementation in Swift and all the different concurrency implementations that are coming. And if we can make them work into Vapor 4 without any breaking changes, then obviously we'll we'll do that. We'd love Vapor 4 to be around for a very long time. But I suspect there'll be um, some issues doing that. Um, and if so, we'll have to release Vapor 5. Uh, and the focus on that will be async await. That will be the main focus. We should make porting stuff to Vapor 5 really easy. So we've, the core team have had quick discussions about this, but nothing laid down and written down yet. But when async await comes out, whenever that, that happens, then there's going to be a big transition for the whole server-side Swift ecosystem onto async await. And it's something that the SSWG, which is the Swift Server Working Group, really need to uh, think about and talk about uh, and discuss and decide how we're going to effectively migrate the entire ecosystem over to a new way of working. Yeah, so for those who don't know, the big component or major structure used throughout Swift Neo was, uh, well, is, I should say, mm-hmm. is uh, event loop futures and event loops and things like that to deal with the asynchronicity of uh, server side, uh, which is essentially kind of like a promise, more or less, uh, yeah. a promise-like pattern. So the idea would be is that that would be... I don't want to say removed, but abstracted away uh, into the syntactic sugar of async and await, which is proposed in Swift 6. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, for the most part, Swift Neo is actually fairly concurrent. All of the kind of internals of Swift Neo are mostly concurrent based. um, And so they won't change at all. But all of the kind of um, event loop future stuff um, that most developers interact with will change. And whether there's a second set of APIs or whether they, there are a new set of APIs depends entirely on how the implementation goes. But it's important to note that everything that's built on top of Swift Neo, whether that's the async HTTP client, whether that's any of the external packages like Soto for talking to AWS, or whether it's any of the database drivers like Postgres Neo or MySQL Neo, they all use event loop features. And so they are all going to have to change be built on top of this new concurrency model. Now, do you think they'll have to like change or is it matter of event loop future will need to implement something so that they could be used as async and await? Ideally, it will be a matter of probably providing a second set of APIs that duplicate the original ones. In that way, then it means that everyone can migrate over as and when they need to. Whether that happens or not, it's it's too early to say, I think. Um, We need to wait for the actual implementations because at the moment you can build your Swift apps with async await. You just can't run them. So the uh, syntax is there. You can mark properties as and functions as async and you can call await to await for them effectively. Um, But you can't, it doesn't actually do anything. So we don't know how that's going to work. And obviously packages like Swift Neo, which are very high performance and built for any kind of use case, really need to ensure that they don't let up any performance downgrades when migrating to async await. Packages like Vapor, which are not as focused on performance and more focused on building, being able to build great APIs and being able to maintain great APIs. 
they we can take a kind of one, two, three, four percent performance hit. Whereas I don't think Neo could because they have use cases where they have, have to have very, very high performance. So there's there's a, a lot of questions unanswered at this point, and I suspect over the coming weeks and months we'll find out the answers to them. But whatever happens. As soon as async await arrives, it's going to be great because it means that everyone's horrible code of having to do lots of nesting or lots of callbacks and chaining um, will just disappear and flatten down. Yeah, yeah. We all know about how I've I've done many an article and talks about how to abstract away and organize your functional programming. And we had uh, Daniel uh, t- on Daniel Steinberger talking about functional programming, um, mm-hmm. and that's like a big part of it. I think a lot of people who've been introduced to Combine and uh, Reactive Swift probably now understand how much of a mess that could be. Uh, if you don't organize your functional programming code, but it can especially be challenging when you're dealing with uh, event loop futures and promises and things like that. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything else you wanted to say about Vapor 5? No, I mean, the, the focus is purely going to be a sick way. Anything, if we can make it work into Vapor 4, then we will do. Um, we don't want to, having just finished releasing Vapor 4, do I have to get everyone onto Vapor 5 yet? So it's it's all based on that. Hey folks, I want to let you know about Linode. Linode is one of my favorite cloud server tools out there as far as hosting is concerned. You may have seen my latest project, Orchard Nest, where I have built a website completely in Swift for showcasing some of the latest and greatest blog posts, podcasts, and videos in the Swift community. And that site is completely hosted on Linode. In fact, I can tell you that the server is in Newark, but they have servers all around the world, everywhere from Toronto to Mumbai. So you can set up anywhere or you can set up load balancing and share your site everywhere as well. But it has been a really fantastic tool in building Orchard Nest and really does a great job showing me like various CPU usage and IP4 traffic, IP6 traffic, disk IO, etc., It's been awesome and it's been consistently running great. And I think it's a really great, you get a lot for your price, especially for developers who really want to build stuff hands-on and get the developer tools they need to start their brand new server project. So go ahead and give Linode a shot. The link to Linode is in the show notes below. Use that to let them know that you heard about Linode from this show. They've been awesome. I really enjoyed hosting Orchard Nest on Linode at OrchardNest.com. It's been fantastic. They have all sorts of great tools. Get yourself a nice, simple Ubuntu server and start working on that Vapor application you want to today using Linode. Again, use the link in the show notes below to let them know you heard about Linode from us. And hopefully you can get started on your new project today. I want to talk a little bit more about Amazon. You just mentioned Soto, which is a library to interface with a lot of the services that AWS uh, provides. Mm-hmm. So besides being able to you know, set up a Lambda, which we talked about, was one of the talks at WWDC this year, Soto is more for interfacing with the plethora of services that Amazon provides. What uh, maybe you can explain more what Soto 
is um, where where does that name even come from? Uh, I don't know if you know that one, but also like why it's an important piece of the server side Swift community. Sure. So Soto is a SDK for working with Amazon Web Services or AWS. So as you mentioned, AWS has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different services for doing pretty much anything you want to do for building server-side applications. Uh, And you need a way of being able to talk to them. So if you want to send an email, then there's a um, AWS service called SES or Simple Email Service, uh, and you need to interact with that. Um, They are all HTTP calls, but you need to create the requests correctly, you need to parse the responses, you need to sign your requests. So Soto is basically a Swift package for being able to do all of that. And it allows you to talk to pretty much any AWS service that's out there. And you can sign requests with it, and you can uh, upload to S3, and you can send push notifications via SNS. You can even schedule EC2 instances if you want to build some uh, infrastructure code. So it allows you to do pretty much anything. I don't know where the name Soto comes from. I have been told, but I can't remember, unfortunately. Um, so Soto has been around for a while. Um, it used to be called AWS SDK Swift, um, but was renamed with version 5 and has been built by a number of people in the community. But Soto 5 was purely, well, mostly built by a guy called Adam Fowler, who's done almost all of the heavy lifting. And it is a really, really cool package. So Amazon don't have a first-party Swift-based SDK so the community have stepped up and built one. But it's based on top of the Go SDK. Um, so it uses scripts to generate all of the code. And then there's a core library, which is built on top of Swift Neo and Async HTTP client that actually does all of the hard work. Uh, and it basically gives you a really wide-ranging API for you to use and talk to all the different services. So I know that the Python one is called Bodo. So there's got to be something going on there where... That does sound familiar, yes. I think it was something like that. I can't, I'd have to look up the conversation, but yeah, that sounds very familiar. Yeah. I feel like I'm going to go down a rabbit hole of entomology on these libraries, but um, <laughs> I'd rather not spend my time doing that. But if somebody knows, feel free to reply on Twitter. Cause I am actually kind of curious where the Opto uh, suffix comes from. Uh, yeah. I've been spending a lot of time. I think we talked about this offline. I've been spending a lot of time working with Soto. It's uh it's really awesome. Uh, you can pretty much work with anything. Dynamo secret, it's encryption, KMS, all that mm-hmm. stuff. S3, I actually did some stuff with S3 earlier this year using Soto. Um, it, it provides pretty much everything you need, um, and, it, and it works. It just works, which is fantastic. Yeah. What do you think are some challenges that folks might face when they're like using Soto that they might not be familiar with? I think the main challenge is just the sheer breadth of um, services that it talks to. Um, (laughs) That's true. (laughs) It's really hard. So obviously, uh, it's impossible for an SDK um, to document everything when it's that size. And but they everything closely mirrors the AWS APIs. So you can just go and look up the API official API docs and explain everything there. Yeah. One thing I found uh, the other day was, I don't know which which API, Amazon API it was, but in their docs, I clicked on the Swift tab and it looked like Objective-C. It was just an Objective-C function stub. Yep. And it was just like, oh, come on. But yeah, Soto pretty much mirrors uh, what 
documentation you see on AWS. So like if you're not sure how a specific service works, you can pretty much figure it out based on AWS and then adapt it to Swift. Um, that's what I've seen. And it works It works pretty well. Yeah, it does. And there are API docs for pretty much every parameter and every function. So um, you can look at those to find out what's going on. Um, they just aren't user guides for uh, all the different functions and features and services because um, for the most part, you can just look at the AWS docs for that. So the other Amazon uh, library I wanted to talk about was Smoke. What exactly is Smoke? You mentioned that earlier in your your State of Swift article. Yeah, so Smoke is a, another server-side Swift framework um, written by a team at Amazon, which is separate from AWS. And they're part of the Amazon Prime Video team, as far as I know. And they've basically built a, a Swift framework for developing the server applications that they need. So they chose to use Swift purely for the benefits of using Swift as a language, as opposed to having any kind of previous knowledge of Swift or experience. So they weren't Swift developers coming into server-side worlds. They were server-side developers coming into Swift, which is really interesting to see. What do you think are some advantages with going with Smoke uh, over Vapor? Even though I know you're no, you're an avid Vapor fan. Well, what do you think are make their argument for why you might want to go with Smoke, especially if you're going to be deploying to like EC2 or one of Amazon's services? Yeah, so Smoke is um, its basically just an alternative to Vapor. It obviously has different ways of writing routes and functions and uh, handling your server requests. And you may find that Vapor doesn't fit how you want to write server-side Swift apps. So by using Smoke, you have an alternative. And it's also great to have a bit of competition. Um, it'd be a real shame if Vapor was the only server-side Swift framework. So having different frameworks, trying out different things and pushing each other forward is only going to be great for the server-side Swift ecosystem. Yeah, I would say so too, especially after IBM's uh, dropping out. What's the current state of Katura, like has it has anybody picked it up or has it pretty much withered? Basically trying to maintain it and um, keep going. They are actively working on it last time I looked, which is great to see. I'm like really, really happy that it's staying alive. I think they've got a fair bit of work to do because Katura you could build on top of either Swift Neo or their own networking library. So I think trying to maintain both of those probably isn't gonna continue in the long run. Um so I suspect they'll move to Swift Neo just because then they integrate with the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, it's really great to see that there's a bit of competition and other frameworks yeah. out there. Um, recently, I saw um, there's a new framework called Chakmok, um, which again is built on top of Swift Neo. And so it's it's awesome to see that there are more and more server-side Swift frameworks. I think if it was just Vapor out there, then it would stagnate a little bit and competition's good and it drives everyone forward. What are some other packages that folks should know about if they're doing server-side development and want to like maintain a like a healthy server besides just like the basic server-side like serving pages and APIs and content and like that? Sure. So there's some really interesting low-level stuff um, that people should look into. Um, obviously, Swift Log is one of them, um, which is a very good logging API. And so that allows you to log all your different requests, log all your different error messages. And there are various implementations for Swift log for either calling out to file-based logs or uh, exporting to uh, the console or any kind of other logging provider. And that forms the kind of the basis of some of the low-level stuff as well. Other packages are things like Swift metrics. So if you want to collect metrics about your server, about how the performance is going, how long your taking to handle requests, how long it's taking to parse different parts of your requests. 
you can look at Swiftmetrics. Uh, and there's various implementations. So there's a Pr Prometheus implementation for Swiftmetrics. There's a Vapor-specific library for doing um, for queuing jobs. Uh, and that's a really interesting use case, especially if you are handling very high traffic and you're doing a lot of stuff in your app. So let's say in your API, you're doing user registration and you want to return to the, the response to the user after they've registered straight away. But once they've registered, you need to be able to send them a, an email. You need to be able to create some stuff in your database. Um, you need to be able to uh, do some analytics. And the user isn't waiting for all these things to return um, before they can start using their account. So you can actually use the jobs um, package to export uh, work onto the background. And if you have large number of microservices, you can all these different microservices can queue up jobs onto specific job uh, workers. And so that's a really good way of offloading work from your main requests. Another really interesting one that's just been announced is Swift Tracing. And so that enables you to trace requests through microservice architectures. So in modern backends, if you're building a microservice-based architecture, you may end up having tens or even hundreds of different microservices. And so one request can talk to many, many, many different services as it goes through and does all the jobs it needs to. And so finding out how a request got to a certain stage uh, can be really, really difficult. And debugging errors is almost impossible if you don't have any kind of tracing routes. So Swift Tracing is built to allow that kind of thing. And so that's just been released in pre-release. I know they're waiting on some of the um, actor-based stuff from the concurrency model to see if that will make things easier before they do a full release. Um, but there are already implementations um, for Swift Tracing. And I'm really, really excited about integrating that into some of my client apps that have you know, tens of microservices. Um, and being able to just trace that and visualize that is going to be really important. Yeah, I wanted to just... Those are pretty awesome because I'm not totally aware of like some of that stuff. But the one thing I have worked with is the job queues in mm -hmm. Vapor. I use that on uh, orchidnest.com, my Swift news site. I use that to scan basically RSS feeds three times a day. Um, and that one, I actually use the Fluent Driver by, um, I'm going to butcher your name, Mateo. So sorry about that. But Mateo Barth Barthelemy uh, has a Fluent Driver that works with the Vapor job queues. And that's uh, awesome because uh, I can just, every so often, I uh, it just goes out and searches for all the RSS feeds of the various developer blogs and YouTube channels and podcasts and serves those out. It works awesome. So yeah, I really like the job queue stuff. I've been working with that a lot and I'm hoping to bring some of that over to, to my Heart Twitch app as well. Cool. So I've hosted uh, a few sites. I've done Heroku. I've done Linode. Uh, if somebody was going to host a site, like let's say everything from hobby to enterprise, what kind of decision process do you use when you decide where you want to host your server side Swift site? That's a very good question. So there are a number of factors you need to think about um, when you're deciding where to host. Um, one of them is cost. If you're running a free personal website or hobby website, you don't want to be paying hundreds of dollars a month in hosting fees. No, you don't. That would not be good. <laughs> yeah. And also simplicity as well. Like most developers don't need or want to learn about how servers work or how to provision different servers, how to auto scale applications. And so there are services out there that build that for you. So things like Heroku are fantastic for hobby developers who have small apps or um, small sites where they just want to be able to deploy really quickly. And Heroku is fantastic for that. 
Heroku is also really good when it comes to when you, you want to scale up too, because it's yep. really easy to just my app, Heart Twitch, uh, you know, for live streaming, your heart rate uh, is really popular amongst horror gamers. So back in October and November, uh, with the, with the Halloween coming up, uh, I I decided I was going to pay a few extra bucks to scale it up uh, specifically because of that, and I didn't want to run into that issue, and it was like really easy to deal with. So they provide all the load balancing. They um, you can set the number of dynos you want, and they'll just distribute the requests across to those different um, instances uh, without, or basically with one click, and you just set the number of dynos, which is fantastic. So the issue is. As you start to grow more and more and more, um, and you need to talk to different services. So let's say you start one of sending push notifications, uh, and you start one of sending emails, and you start one of storing secrets and stuff. Um, Heroku is less optimized for that use case, um, and it also can get expensive quite quickly. The other thing that I've run into, and this is why I host Orchid Nest on uh, Linode, is the limitation on the number of rows you store. Yeah, they you can pay more for Postgres. Uh, the Postgres hobby serving is free, but they cap the number of rows. And when you're storing uh, links to the plethora of Swift blogs and podcasts and YouTube uh, videos, I just didn't want to run into that. So I moved over to Linode in that case because I didn't have a cap on the number of rows I was storing. Yeah, I think um, they have a hobby plan, which is like $7 a month or something. It gives you like another like bump in number of rows. Right. I think think it's like up to a million. But as soon as you want kind of any large scale application, you're talking like $50, $60 a month just for your database, which is expensive. And so as soon as you start kind of getting up to a bigger scale or maybe need to talk to lots of different services, or maybe you're building a very complex backend that has a number of different microservices that you want to isolate in their own network without being able to talk to the rest of the world, that's when you kind of want to start thinking about other things. Personally, I really wouldn't recommend anyone just creating an EC2 instance or a DigitalOcean droplet or instance like that and just running stuff on there because then you have to worry about backups and maintenance and keeping it up to date with security patches, etc. And for the majority of people, it's probably not worth your time. So there's, there's a trade-off there. Um, I'd say go for Roku to start with if you're um, relatively small. And then as you grow, you can start to migrate to things like AWS or GCP or Azure or um, hosting your own things on Linode or DigitalOcean. Hey folks, I wanted to talk to you again about app figures. You probably already know them, but their analytics and their app store optimization. App figures really is about giving app makers the tools they need to get more downloads and revenue. Well, now app figures can help you track competitors from how many downloads they're getting and how much money they're making to their audience demographics and which SDKs they use. Their competitor intelligence really gives you great context. Say a competitor adds like a new feature or was mentioned in the news recently. With app figures, you can see if that brought in more downloads right away. Got a great idea for an app or a game? Well, with app figures, you can figure out how big that market is and how much money you could be making with it. And that's just scratching the surface. Whether you're growing your app or building a new one, app figures has the tools you need that will reduce the risk but also get you more downloads. You don't need a large budget or a data science degree to do this kind of thing. AppFigures has made it affordable and simple. On top of tools, AppFigures also provides a lot of great guides and tutorials to take you step-by-step through gaining more visibility with ASO and increasing your revenue by learning from your competitors. They just released a free guide on that, actually. 
So go ahead, head to the link in the show notes and try app figures for free. If you like it, use our special code empower 3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you app figures for sponsoring our show. So what have you seen as far as clients reception to server side Swift and has that changed over, over the years? Yeah, definitely. I think, so I've been basically full-time server-side Swift now for two years, maybe two years. It goes very quickly. (laughs) And certainly when I initially started, things were very quiet and trying to convince people that server-side Swift was a viable option and definitely production-ready in in air quotes was a bit of a challenge to start with. Um, But certainly over the like last year or so, definitely, the questions have gone from is it ready to how do I do it? I don't find clients asking anymore if is it going to be okay to host my site. Um, I think most of the concerns now are around recruiting developers for server-side Swift mm, okay. because people are really interested to do it, but they're worried about can they get the number of developers to be able to keep it up as, as they grow, which is a great place to be because it means there's demand there for people building server-side Swift applications, which means that jobs are going to start coming, which means that there's going to be a pool of developers. And because lots of people already know Swift, finding developers isn't actually going to be that difficult. Um, And I found that myself, like I'm currently recruiting myself and I had 50 people for a single job post, uh, which is awesome to see. Um, And it means there's both demand out there for developers and also a pool of developers to tap into. Yeah. And likewise here, like I've gotten more demand for like actual server side work, uh, as well, uh, from clients. So like you, you can kind of tell that, 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 that tipping point kind of was reached this yeah. year, I feel like. And, and it's funny because I remember maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, whenever it was, when people thought it was crazy to do server side JavaScript development. And they were like, this is stupid. Like this is a dumb hobby project. And now it's like, Node is by far the most popular server side um, mm-hmm. suite out there as far as uh, building a server side app. And I kind of feel like, you know, I said this last time, but like Swift is kind of that same sort of uh, trajectory of like, you know, it reaches a tipping point and then it's like, oh, yeah, this is normal to do server side Swift development. Yeah, and you can follow the trajectory of both Node.js or Go or Rust or um, Swift and basically plot the path and see where it is. And Swift is definitely in a healthy place in terms of its growth. Right. Yeah, exactly. What are some common mistakes that perhaps like iOS developers might make when they're building a server-side Swift application? Yeah, so there's definitely a different way of thinking when you're building applications for the server as opposed to building applications for the client. Uh, And the biggest change is that you no longer have one user. So if you're building an iOS app, um, you almost always, well, in fact, always only have one user at a time, um, which means that you can just store stuff in singletons, you can store stuff in memory without having to really really worry about cross-contaminating different uh, users on the server you, you can't do that if you start storing like the currently logged in user in memory in just like a singleton and then every user who sends a request is going to be able to access that so you need to be able to think about how your users are accessing your application and how you're going to keep them separate and then also things like scaling as well so if you're planning to build an app that needs to scale you can't store stuff in memory you need to use a cache like redis um, you need to make sure you store stuff in the database properly and also ensuring that you account for errors as well. So 
building an iOS app, if you hit a, an error case, you might fatal error or force unwrap something because 99% of the time is not going to crash. And if it does crash, the user can just open the app again. It's not a problem. If you cause a crash in your server-side app, that takes down your server app for every user currently using it. So you need to be able to handle errors correctly and worry about the use cases that might not you might not necessarily hit all the time because you will hit them at some point. So we touched on this when we talked about Windows, but what's the state of development outside of Mac OS and Xcode? Because I had a transition period uh, between trying to sell my MacBook Pro and trying to, waiting for my new Apple Silicon MacBook Air, where I tried doing development on an old Linux netbook, which sucked. Not because of the software, but because of the hardware. But it was kind of interesting seeing what's out there, especially like Visual Studio Code and things like that. What have you seen as far as developing on like Swift on Linux or Windows? So I know there are people who use Linux day in, day out to develop Swift applications. Uh, I know they're out there. Um, I know that certainly people on the Swift Wasm team primarily use VS Code um, for development. And anyone using Linux will use Atom or VS Code or uh, even Vim or something like that. Um, and they're all built on top of SourceKit and SourceKit LSP which uh, provides basically a way of getting auto-completion and code highlighting and syntax highlighting and being able to click through to definitions. I've seen a couple of posts on how to use it. I know there was a post on raywendelit.com. One of my authors wrote a post about it. And as far as I understand, it works, but I am pretty sure it's not anywhere near as good as Xcode at the moment, which is a little bit disappointing to see because... The SourceKit LSP project was announced over a year ago, definitely. And I would have hoped there'd be more movement on it by now. I suspect now that Swift is ABI stable, um, and as soon as things like concurrency are landed in the, the language, there'll be a bigger demand and more time to spend on improving SourceKit and making sure it integrates properly. So hopefully over the next year, we'll see a better uh, solution to building apps outside of the Apple ecosystem. Or building Swift. Yeah, we talked about this in the last episode, and it was still, you know, it was a challenge back then. Yeah. There was a really good post in the Swift forums by uh, Sven Van Imp about how he tries to use Linux to teach Swift to developers, and I'll mm-hmm. post that uh, in the show notes as well. Yeah, he's got a really um, good uh, educational uh, thing that he's um, working on, which is basically teaching people how to use Swift and set up from start. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really good to see because I want to do, I want to do some Swift with the kids too, which I know is like a little bit of a challenge, but still, I, I think they're, they'd be interested in seeing what kind of cool stuff you can do. Yeah. The Playgrounds app on iPad is actually really good for that. Yeah. Um, I have to say. Yeah. I've, I've played with that a few times and it does teach the basics, but at some point you definitely need a proper IDE to be able to build on. So before we close out, Tam, where do you see the future of server-side Swift and Vapor uh, at the end of next year? If the trajectory continues as it has been over the previous year, um, it's only going to get better. I think this year we'll see async await land, or I really hope we do see it land um, (laughs) properly. And that's going to open up um, server-side Swift development um, to a lot more people. It's going to simplify developing apps on the server. And it's kind of one of the last missing pieces for people to be able to jump on board and use Swift as a, as a proper language. Once it has a decent concurrency model that works, um, it should make a huge difference. So I'm, I'm just excited. Like Having seen the number of um, packages that were released this year for server-side Swift-specific stuff, I can only hope that continues. Um, and integrations with more 
services such as AWS or integrating with GitHub um, and things like that. I'm, I hope we'll see that over the coming year as well. Do you think async in a way is a matter of something that's going to be talked about at WWDC this year? Like, is that, what, is that kind of the timeline for it, you think? I mean, obviously, I'm just speculating here. I have no idea. But I would think it would land before WWDC next year. Because if they announce at WWDC, that means it's not going to land until September. And given that there are already implementations for most stuff, I suspect it will be sooner than nine months. Interesting. Um, so okay. I, yeah, I, I suspect we'll start to see things like um, the structured concurrency implementation land maybe March time, potentially. Um, so we're talking like Xcode 12.4, 12.5, something like that. Yeah, potentially. Okay. Um, I, I definitely think it will take until September for all the different pieces to land. Yeah. Uh, things like the um, async sequence stuff that was just pitched, um, that's not going to land anytime soon. And there's a lot of stuff waiting on structured concurrency and actors um, until those pitches can go through. But yeah, I suspect we'll see the the core implementation before dubbed up this year. Yeah. I hope we do anyway. And probably a lot of talks going along with it, I would assume. There will be a lot of talks at dubbed up, yeah, yeah, about how to use it and integrate it with Objective C or Combine or Swift UI or anything like that. Yep. Yep. Actually, that, that is a good point, uh, in fact, is that I suspect they want async await to land so that they can use it with the new APIs that come out at dubbed up, whether that's for a Combine upgrade or a um, Swift UI upgrade or even a replacement to core data. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, Tim. I really appreciate having you again. Uh, this is our last episode of the year, so I think this is a great way to close out. What are you most looking forward to in uh, 2021 when it comes to Swift development besides the server-side stuff? Uh, selfishly, conferences. I've, I've really missed the kind of conference scene this year uh, and not being able to see people. So hopefully towards the uh, middle and end of this year, next year, 2021, we'll be able to start traveling again and have conferences in person and see people. So are you going to miss like all the bread baking and gardening though? <laughs> I suspect I'll still keep that going. Yeah, I'm, uh, the greenhouse is mostly finished now and uh, my sourdough starters still need feeding, so they're still going. I've just got a delivery of 25 kilos of Italian pizza flour. So I need to get through that anyway. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we have a big, my wife is the bread baker in the family. We have a big tub of flour that we've, she's been working with. So yeah, I know, I know what that's like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I agree with you though. I'm really looking forward to conferences. Uh, I just did uh, the iOS uh, developer uh, happy hour uh, this week, which, uh, Alan, uh, puts up and that's, that's absolutely awesome. I'm really glad he does that. Um, but I miss seeing people in person. So I agree with you. I I'm hoping that, uh, hoping that we do that soon again. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been really good to talk to you. Well, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, best place is on Twitter at zero X Tim. Um, that's zero X is in the number zero if it is if writing hex, or you can go to my website at timc.dev. Thank you again. And people can find me on Twitter at LeoGDN. My company is Bright Digit. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. And uh, if you could take some time and provide a review uh, of the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you have a happy new year, and we will talk to you again in the next episode. Uh, we'll actually be doing a crossover episode with... Uh, Jaren uh, of 
Epforce. So be sure to look out on his podcast for his interview with me, giving my year in review, and I will be talking to him about his year. And we will also be talking about his year in review as well. And I'll provide links to his podcast as well. So subscribe and be sure to keep an eye out for that. Thank you. Thank you.